Welcome to Journey Church Tucson Sermon Podcast. We are an evangelical free church seeking to honor God by making disciples that learn about, love like, and live like Jesus. Well, I want to start this morning with a question that's designed to trigger some some memory in your life. But the question is this, have you ever been tested? And let me qualify that. I'm, I'm saying really, really, really tested Have you ever really, really, really been tested believing that it was a test from God? And I want you to to think back and remember that test. I want you to keep it close to you this morning, but I've got a second question. And that is this. If you were perhaps being tested in some area of your life today, and you might just pick the one that keeps you on your knees the most, the one that causes you the most anxiety, What would that be that you believe God is testing you today? He's calling forth for your trust, your faith, your obedience, your loyalty. So you got two stories now. Something from your past, the most extreme test that you know of. And then secondly, today, how is God perhaps testing you? A lot of you know my story. I've been uh, here preaching for 13 years as the lead pastor. I don't want to bore you with the same old, same old. Um, if you know me, I think you know my, my number one greatest test. It's an ongoing test. Um, and it has to do with our youngest child. See, go back to 2004. Um, we were coming back from a vacation. Um, we were in El Centro, California, and he had his first febrile seizure. Um, That is to say, he had a high fever. We think it was uh, meningitis, and he had his first seizure, and no worries. Everything was great. He was a healthy child. Two months later, he had another fever, and he had another seizure. And then a few weeks later, now he's 16 months old, he starts having seizures, only this time there's no fever. And he spent nine days in ICU, both at UMC and uh, the hospital right over here, TMC. Brutal, grueling, painful, and it didn't stop. We had a break about two years where we thought he's better. We just think he has some delays. Um, it was 2009, right after I'd become the lead pastor. And we had gone to Cleveland Clinic. He got brain surgery. We know that it wasn't supposed to cure him, but it was supposed to be therapeutic and reduce his seizures between 30 to 50%. We said, we'll take it do brain surgery. We came back, and it was nine days later, and it happened to be the night before Father's Day. It was the only Sunday that I, that I planned to not preach all that year as uh, my first year as the lead pastor, and that night, nine days after surgery, he hadn't had a seizure yet, but he didn't have one seizure. He had more like 14 to 15 seizures throughout the night, and I was devastated. I remember calling on God and saying, you think you're a a father? This is Father's Day. You call yourself good, but right now you don't seem very good. Right now you seem really, really mean. That story God has provided. Yes, he has, but it's an ongoing story. He's now 19 years old. Thank you, Jesus, for my youngest son. But the story goes on with 
new layers of testing and anxiety and what's next for him? What do we do next year? Every year it's that same question. What do we do now? And I know some of you can relate to that challenge in particular being the parents of those with special needs. Others, I'm sure you have something in your life as well where you have been tested and you are continually tested. And the question that comes to mind, and it's a compound question, but the question that every single one of us has to answer is this, is he good? Can he be trusted? Will he provide? That's at the heart of our talk today, but what does it have to do with the atonement? Let's look into that. So we're in these five weeks leading up to Easter in this sermon series called The Atonement. So last week I introduced these words. I'm going to put them back up there uh, again. The word atonement appeared in the 16th century in, in English in writing. And it is a word that is it's a compound word made up of these two words, at one mint. At one mint. And it has the idea of making amends and rendering of satisfaction for wrong done that brings an end to the alienation and restores good relations so that there can be an at-one-ness again. Well, there's a Hebrew word, kafar, which comes from the idea of to cover over with pitch. That's like tar. Cover over with pitch to purge or to make reconciliation, to pacify or propitiate. And then there's a word in the Greek, katalage, which has the idea of, of an exchange. And the idea of exchanging equivalent values as did the money changers or do the money changers. And making an, ad an adjustment of a difference, also having the idea of reconciliation or a res restoration of Favor. And here's the big question why we're actually looking into the atonement or the atonement is this. How does God take away or deal with our sins as well as our general sinfulness? Because we have a problem with both. Our sin nature and the ways in which we act it out in real life. How does God deal with that? One word. The atonement. The atonement. And in these five weeks, we're looking at five pictures, five prophecies, five illustrations or typologies, five foreshadowings, all having to do with this covering, this exchange, this at-one-ment that is ours or can be ours through faith in Jesus Christ. And our second picture of the atonement, the atonement today is found in Genesis chapter 22. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open to Genesis chapter 22. We're going to focus in on verses 1 through 14. And this is what we read there. We're just going to read the first two verses, hit pause, and uh, we'll come back in a moment. But says, after these things, so you'd have to go and read the story of Abraham and, and his walk of faith and different things God did with, but this is toward the latter end of his life. 
after these things, God tested Abraham. God was doing this and said to him, Abraham. And Abraham said, here I am. Verse 2, he said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Now there's a, a very powerful, relational, emotional quality to these verses. And actually the whole passage. Uh, we're going to come back to that and look at, at what kind of tests this would be for Abraham. But in order to go further and really understand what's going on here, we must first understand what a burnt offering is. What is a burnt offering? What's it for? What does it do? How is it different from the grain offering or the, the sin offering or the peace offering or the guilt offering? The five different sacrifices that are named and described in the book of Leviticus. So what is the burnt offering? I will say this, that the burnt offering is the oldest, the most ancient of all the sacrifices explained in the scriptures, going back perhaps all the way to last week's text in Genesis chapter 3, um, quite likely Genesis chapter 4. We see it in Genesis 8 for sure, Genesis 12, and now Genesis 22. Finally, it would be instituted and explained in Leviticus chapter 1. So let's take a look at these. Genesis 3, the animals that were killed to make coverings for Adam and Eve. Many scholars believe that, quite likely, it was also a burnt offering. After removing the skins, the animal being burned. Abel seems to offer this kind of sacrifice in Genesis 4. God approved of him, but his brother that offered grain instead was not approved of. Abel offered the burnt offering. Now we know for sure that Noah offered the burnt offering after the Lord had delivered he and his families, family members, through the flood. And that's, that one's important enough, tells us enough that we should actually really read this so Genesis chapter 8, it'll be up on the screen, verse 20 through 22. This is what it says about the burnt offering. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. Watch what it does to the Lord. Something special about this. When the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, does God just like grilled, grilled steak? What's going on here? Something about it pleases him. And, and the, the clue is found in the oath God takes after smelling the burnt offering. God says, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth, true. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I've done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. The aroma of the burning flesh did something to the heart of God, by which he took an oath, 
I'm never going to lash out in this way again. The burnt offering brought a kind of atonement in that moment. Now, we read in in Genesis 12 that Abraham, after hearing God's promises to him, offered a burnt offering. But what is the burnt offering? The explanation, the more full explanation, that even explains what happened with Noah, is found in Leviticus chapter 1. And I'll read this as well. This is at the very beginning, the very first words of Leviticus. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them. So every individual in Israel is now being invited to make burnt offerings. Say to them, when any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting. And now here's the purpose. Here's what it does. That he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hands on the head of the, of the animal, uh, the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him. So there's this idea of transference. There's something about the worshiper and the offerer putting their hands on the head of the sacrifice. And it says right there that, that it will be accepted, that he may be accepted before the Lord, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord, and then they're supposed to burn it all the way down to ashes. So putting all these things together, the burnt offering, what's going on between God and Abraham? Because in the text you're reading it and you're going, I don't see any sin. Why does God want a, a burnt offering, let alone of his own son? Well, here's the picture, is... Not only do we need an offering for individual sinful choices, worshipers must have an offering, a continual offering for their sin nature, for their fallenness. We have both sides of this. Think about that. Every single one of us who came to worship today must have a burnt offering to make atonement, to stand in our place. And you go, I I thought through my week I didn't sin. That I know of, I know, but you do know you are sinful, correct? That's the burnt offering. It's for the sin nature of the worshiper. Necessary in order for the sinner to come into God's presence in worship and devotion. God is not merely asking Abraham for a burnt offering, but a burnt offering of his very son. Not of a bull or a lamb, but his very child. This comes after Abraham is declared righteous in Genesis 15, verse 6. It comes after he's received the son of promise that is the fulfillment of of the Abrahamic covenant to him, the one through whom Messiah would come. His name, Isaac. And now God wants him to take that precious gift of a unique 
son, the only son of his wife, Sarah. Not the son of his slave woman. The son of his wife. And he wants him as a burnt offering. This was confusing, to say the least. Could not reconcile the two sides of this. God, you give me the promised son, and now you want me to kill him. And I guarantee you that Abraham was tested in our question today. Is God good? Can he be trusted? Will he provide? I want you to notice the emotional quality of the way Moses is recording this. Writing it down under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It's masterful storytelling, by the way. But a couple of these qualities, only Isaac will do. And the way God even says it to him in verse 2. I want you to give me your son. Speaking of his fatherly relationship. Your only son. Speaking to the exclusive quality of this one in particular. Isaac your son, let's start to name him as if God is agitating Abraham and ensuring that it is a deep and profound test of his heart. Isaac, your son. This is Abraham's sweetheart. This is Sarah's laughter. This would be Israel's patriarch. This would be the church's hope. In Israel's promised seed, and now God is calling for him to be put to death and thoroughly burned up. Second thing I want to just point out here with the, uh, the emotional quality of this is you've got to go to the land of Moriah. You know how far that is from where, where Abraham and Isaac were in Beersheba? 45 to 50 miles. So not only is there this relationship and the, the promises of God in this co- seeming contradiction, but now they've got to walk for 45 to 50 miles. And he's not sharing what's going on with anyone else, only between him and God. And you think that those were hard miles? For three days, it says. And then finally, he doesn't say, just take him up and go through the motions, don't act it out. Don't just wound him or, or kill him, but leave his body so maybe there can be some kind of mir- miracle. God is calling for him to be a burnt offering. Thoroughly, thoroughly incinerate his body into ashes. Let me ask you this question before we go further. Um, why is Moses writing this down? See, he's writing Genesis very early on in the exodus, in the deliverance of the people, the nation of Israel. They're uneducated slaves. They've been slaves. They've been working 24-7 for Pharaoh. Now they're delivered, and now they're in the wilderness. And it's so hard. It's so, so against human reason to be out in the Sinai desert. Perhaps two million of them or more. And they're going to be tested over and over and over again. They're going to be faced with circumstances that defy human reason. And over and over and over again, God is going to invite them. Please trust me. And then watch this. And yet each miracle that happens, 
they take for granted and continually forget. What is Moses' point of recording these kinds of events all throughout Genesis? In, in, to, to what he's doing is he's giving them their faith. He's giving them a, a cogent and spiritual and true worldview. He's helping them understand that their God is not like the gods of the nations. Their God is the true God, the high God, Yahweh himself. And that he is trustworthy, he is good, and he will provide. So this great test is being written down for the people of Israel who are asking this question throughout their wilderness years. Is God good? If you haven't written it down yet in your notes, write it down. Is God good? Can he be trusted? Will he provide? Warren Wearsby, Bible teacher, loved this, this quote. He says, our faith is not really tested until God asks us to bear what seems unbearable, do what seems unreasonable, and expect what seems impossible. And the Jews in the desert would live that kind of test. But never to the, the degree to which their patriarch, Abraham, And so Moses wants them to understand, you think it's hard for you? You're wondering if you can trust God? Watch Abraham and watch the God of our fathers, the God of Abraham. Abraham's trust is weighed against common sense, human reason, family affection, and lifelong ambition. And Moses was teaching Israel to trust Yahweh regardless of human reason, common sense, as they would continue to ask the same question that I think we do, is God good? Can I trust him? Will he provide? You know, actually, it's not just for Israel. Did you know that this this story is for you and I? This is what the Apostle Paul would say to the church in Corinth. Now, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, New Testament believers, on whom the end of the ages has come. And so today, whether you're Abraham, children of Israel, or a 21st century American Christian, the same question applies. Is God good? Can I trust him? Will he provide? Now, back to Abraham. He had a unique form of this question found in this in particular. Can I trust him with my most valued treasure? Abraham had to face... Trusting God, surrendering, giving back to God his most valued treasure. And for Abraham, it seems to be a foregone conclusion, but I want you to understand that this would be confusing, grueling, and brutal. I count six reasons why Abraham should reconsider the request. Let me just bullet point them real quickly. First off, this was totally contrary to God's nature. Yahweh was not a God who delighted in human sacrifice. These were the gods of the surrounding people. These are the gods of Abraham's forefathers coming out of idolatry himself. But Yahweh God had never asked for a human sacrifice and never would again except in one instance. 
Secondly, this was contrary to natural law and fatherly affections. This was like, you want to get, you want to make me cry? Hurt my kids. You want to make me pray? Tell me something's wrong with my kids. It's grueling. I'm, I've heard this stated. I've adopted it as my own. I think my wife and I re- resonate. Our, our joy is tied to our, the degree to which we can be joyful seems to be tied to our, our uh, least joyful child. Like, how are they doing? The others are fine. Okay, what, what's, what about our least joyful child? And man, there's an emotional trigger there tied to, to kids, and this is what Abraham is dealing with. Thirdly, there's no, no reason given whatsoever. Just go and do this. When, when God told Abraham to cast out the slave woman and Ishmael, his son, his firstborn son, by the slave woman, God explains to him why. But in this instance, no explanation given. Five, this is going to be impossible to explain to Sarah. I guarantee you, he does not tell her. And uh, there, no matter how this goes, it's going to be weird. Um, and if it goes through, he is never going to have a healthy marriage ever again. Okay, that's going to be a price tag. Number, number six, what are the people in the surrounding lands going to say about Abraham and his God? What are the Canaanites going to say? What are the Perizzites going to say? What kind of father would do that kind of thing and blame it on his God? Okay, so, so God's name and reputation and Abraham's name and reputation, all these things are on the line, but despite all these objections and apparent contradictions, Abraham demonstrates an unquestioning and immediate obedience. He even gets an early start. Let's jump back into the text. This is what it says in verse 3. And, and I want you to pay particular attention to the conjunction and. Not all of them fall into this category, but but. And shows up more than any other word in these next several verses, from verses 3 to 10. And the vast majority of them represent another painful step in the process toward a dreadful sacrifice. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him, and his son Isaac, and he cut wood. I mean, he could, it could have even been a stall, like, don't bring wood. Maybe there's no wood there. Maybe that'll give me time. Maybe, but instead, there's this obedience like, and I'm going to even prepare the wood and take it with me. And cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Verse four, on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey and I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Verse six, And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, and took his hand, the fire, and the knife. So they went, both of them, together. Verse 7, and Isaac said to his father, my father, oh, don't call me that, son. Not now. My father, and he said, here I am, my son. And he said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Verse 8, Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. 
So they went both of them together. This could be the language of obedience, like, son, when, when the time comes, we must offer the sacrifice that God appoints. I don't have the heart to tell you yet. Or it could be the language of faith. I believe God's promise. I don't know how it works with the commandment. These two don't line up, but I know God's promise. And I'm going to hold on to that, and whether it's one or the other or a little bit of both. He says, we, God will provide. God will provide. Verse 9. And again, what the ands get louder. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Verse 10. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. I count 14 very meaningful ands in there. Others that are go, that's just a, another, another kind of speech there. But every single and being a grueling, calculated, measured step of obedience. And the question that he's asking along the journey, the specific question, can I trust him with my most valued treasure? And I would say to us today that the Lord Jesus asks us the same question. Can I trust him with my most valued treasure? Remember how I asked you to, to, to remember the test or the current test? Here's another question. What is your most valued treasure? Other than God himself, other than Jesus Christ and the sacrifice on your behalf, in this lifetime, what brings you the most joy, the most comfort, the most uh, delight in this life? What is your most treasured possession? Can he have it back? Can he have it all? Because that's the question. That's the question for Abraham. That's the question for Israel. That's the question for New Testament believers. Can he have it back? Not knowing if he'll take it or not? Would you offer it to him in faith? It's all going to depend on this question. Is God good? Can I trust him? Will he provide for me? Makes all the difference. Well, where's Isaac in this narrative? Because he's kind of the silent partner. And we don't often talk about him when we unwrap Genesis 22. But you know he's a real dude. He's got an experience here as well. Uh, most scholars, you've put all the, all the data together, we think that he's uh, an early teenager or maybe up to age 16. Okay, there's some hints and clues in the, in the storyline of Genesis, but also um, how he is, is traveling with his father, how he's carrying the wood up the mountain, that he's not just a little seven-year-old. Um, he's somewhere in that young manhood, but we see that he has a story as well, and he's got his own question. A little bit different than Abraham's, but in the same vein as all of ours. Is he good? Can I trust him? Will he provide? Isaac's question is this, can I trust him with my very 
life. Can I trust him with my very life? I want you to, to notice the obedience and compliance of young Isaac. First off, he carries the wood for his own sacrifice to the altar site. Gives us a clue to his age, as I said before. Secondly, he goes along with his father's plan without sign of struggle, argument, or escape attempt. Thirdly, even allows himself to be bound and lie still while his father puts the blade to his throat. And in so doing, demonstrates his faith in the God of his father, Abraham. It had become his own. Why? Why not argue? Why not question? Why not fight? How did he do this? And the answer is simple. It's because Isaac, whatever age he was, had already has his answer to the question. Is God good? Can he be trusted? Will he provide? And again, as, as that last question, Jesus asks us, he asks this one as well. In fact, it's in the Gospels in Matthew 16, 25, where Jesus says these words, for whoever would save his life will lose it. You want to wrestle with and fight and explain. And yeah, you, you love Jesus and you want the gift of salvation. You want to go to heaven when you die. But when he asks for your life, you go, but Jesus, but th this, I like this better. And we want to fuss and, and it doesn't seem logical. And sometimes he asks us to do things that are against our, our hopes and our dreams. Things that maybe our parents put into our head. And we've got to contradict those things. And we've got to go in another direction and offer our lives back to him. And Jesus says, if you're going to fight me on this, you would save your life. You're going to lose it. You're going to find out. It's not what you think it is. Your dreams are not going to be what you hope them to be. But then he goes on to say, but whoever loses his life for my sake. You open your hands, you offer that up, and you say, not my will, but yours be done. And you find out his will is better. And instead of a fight and being disillusioned with your own dreams, you find yourself coming into a new dream, a redeemed dream, a God dream. A dream that gives life. A dream that you were made for. Jim Elliott, missionary uh, to the Wadanis in uh, Ecuador, uh, a hero of mine, um, cut my teeth on, on two books in college, Through Gates of Splendor, highly recommend you read it, and In the Shadow of the Almighty, a little bit more personal and a little bit more intimate uh, from the journals of Jim Elliott. And Jim Elliott was famous for this statement. It's not the only statement he made, but wow, what a powerful one. He is no fool who gives up that which he cannot keep in order to gain that which he cannot lose. And that has been tried and tested over and over and over and over and over again. It was tried and tested by Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all of Israel in the, in the desert wanderings and on in, through the prophets and into the New Testament and Jesus himself. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Something else is going on here that bears mentioning, it really takes us into uh, Easter, and that is this. There is a divine drama being acted out. Abraham and Isaac have no knowledge they, that they are actually playing parts in giving us a typology or a foreshadowing 
of something in the future. Something that would not take place for 1,700 years. Let me point out a couple things in Isaac's story. He carries his own cross, as it were, the wood up the mountain, just like Jesus. John 19, 17 says that he, Jesus, went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. And while this is 1,700 years too soon, it is almost the exact same location on Mount Moriah. Mount Moriah contained both the Temple Mount and Golgotha. Same place. That's why they traveled three days. He took them to the future side of Jerusalem where Jesus Messiah would offer up his life freely. Then we see in Isaac a willing victim attitude of the suffering servant Jesus. Isaiah 53, 7 is a prophecy that's written in past tense. Like only God can do this. It happened exactly like this, written 600 years before it happened. In past tense, as if it had happened. And it says this, he was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. This is Isaac. Quiet, accepting his father, tying up his hands as Jesus himself was nailed to the cross. The question that all of us have, Abraham, Isaac, and anyone who's ever been tested Is God good? Can he be trusted? Will he provide? Well, the story isn't over. Isaac had spoken his reply by his silence, as it were, by his compliance. Abraham was willing to go all the way, but let's see how it turns out. Verse 10, then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. Verse 11, but the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I I am. And he said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Verse 13, and Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of, that's the atonement, instead of his son. And Abraham called the name of the place the Lord will provide. This is in Hebrew, Yahweh Yahira. Yahweh Yahira. God is my provider or the Lord will see to it. Is he good? Is he trustworthy? Will he provide? The Lord will see to it. And then it says, as it is said to this day, so when Moses is writing this for those those Jews in the wilderness wandering, there is apparently a cultural kind of saying that kind of just comes out at times. As it is said to this day, quote, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. So there's a little cliche that's actually formed around this, and he goes, I told you so. Here's the story to go with it. So here's the question for us today. Thinking about whatever it is that you've been tested with and you don't know if God's good or you're struggling today and this nagging question or a test that is still future to come, you don't know how, how scary, how dark, how bad 
that test might be, but you're going to be tested on this question. Is God good? Can I trust him? Will he provide? And can I give you the bottom line of the, the message today? The atonement confirms that God is good and that he is trustworthy. He has already provided for my deepest need. He's my burnt offering. And he will provide for my greatest longing. That longing might be redeemed, it might be changed, but it really is my, my true longing. He knows what that is, and the Lord will provide. We got a moment, I want to play a song for you with some lyrics. I'm going to apologize to the, to the uh, live streaming people, because our licenses don't permit it to actually be streamed. They'll shut down our, our YouTube channel. Um, but we're going to give you a link to check this out a little bit later. Um, this is Michael Card. And a song that he wrote about this narrative and the beauty of God's atonement on our behalf. The angel of the Lord called to him from heaven saying, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here am I. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. It's as if God the Father said, only one son needs to die, but not today. Today a ram will do. And when it's time for a son to die, it will be my own, not yours. Is God good? Can he be trusted? Will he provide? Isaiah 53.10, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. John the Baptist said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believes on him should not perish, but have eternal life. Men and women, the atonement confirms that God is good, that he is trustworthy. He has already provided for our deepest needs, and he will provide for our greatest longings. Can I ask you once again, what is it that God has tested you in? What is your most treasured possession what about your very life? Will you trust him? Will you receive him as your Lord, as your Savior? Will you come under him that you might discover that he is indeed good, that he is indeed trustworthy, and that he is Yahweh, Yahira, our provider? the God who will see to it. Right now, I would ask you to bring back up in your mind that area, whether it's that treasured possession or that area, quite often they overlap. You're tested in your area of the, of the thing that you treasure the most. What is God asking of you? Would you open your hands to him? Say, God, I'm banking on the fact that you are good. It might be a prolonged storyline where you don't get resolution overnight. But day after day, will you continue to trust him? Holding on in hope against hope. God, you are good. God, you are trustworthy. God, you will provide. And follow him in obedience. Father, thank you so much for your great love for us. Thank you for, um, for some reason in this fallen world, Wow, you, you leave us here in opportunities 
to receive you by faith and to live by faith. And for some reason, you absolutely love it when your kids trust you, believe you, wait upon you. And we want to be those kids. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to Journey Church Tucson Sermon Podcast. We'd love to have you join us in person on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. You can find out more about us at journeyefc.org.